Hello and welcome to Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. This is a series where we take every week a particular political situation that's happening in the world and we break it down, make it very easy for you to digest. Dr. Keith, tell us a little bit about yourself and why you are so qualified to do this. Well, I've got a background in the teaching of international relations, so I've got three PhDs. The first PhD is in international law relating to armed conflict, particularly terrorism. The second doctorate looked at the economics of the arms race and called for the creation of a peace industrial complex, so you can look that up on Wikipedia. And then thirdly, um, I've got a doctorate in scenario planning, which is a technique for thinking about the future. So I'm not just worried about analysing situations, I try to look at how the situation could evolve into the future. You're also a commentator on the Seven Network and on radio stations across the country. Yes, I'm on radio on average once a day, mainly international affairs, also economic and political updates. And today we're going to be talking about whether the US uh, and North Korea, whether war is inevitable. Um, This is coming from headlines out of the US that the army is sort of It's become D-Day. They're about to make a decision about it. And this is despite the charm offensive that we are currently seeing playing out in Pyeongchang in South Korea with the Olympics. Absolutely. So we're really reaching a crunch point in the sense that by the time President Trump is scheduled to leave office in three years' time, uh, North Korea will be a nuclear power. It will have nuclear weapons capable of reaching the United States mainland. And so... This is not a problem that uh, President Trump created. It's one that he's inherited. But nonetheless, it'll it'll fully flower during his time while he's in office. So by the time he leaves office, this will be his first major foreign policy failure. So why is this so... I mean, this is, um, according to American analysts, it's D-Day. So they want to make a decision as soon as possible whether they will take military action against the North or not. They haven't up until this date. Why now? Well, I think the problem is because they're just so close to finalising the nuclear weapons. This is a problem that began at the time of President Clinton, so we're going back now a quarter of a century. So um, to use the American expression, they kicked the can down the road. So Clinton tried to do a deal with North Korea and failed. President Bush came into power. Um, had a different approach, but which also failed. And then Obama came into office, another approach, which it all failed. Essentially, we're talking about stick and carrots. So the stick means that you have sanctions against North Korea, it's particularly the policy of President George Bush, or you have a carrot. In other words, you try to engage North Korea in some sort of way of, of a, in, in bringing them into the international community. So there are your two contrasting approaches. So Clinton was carrot, Bush became stick. Now we went go to Obama, who becomes carrot again. All three failed. Trump comes into office a year ago and is confronted with this challenge. And uh, he can't kick the can very easily down the street because North Korea will become a nuclear power within the next three years. So in other words, the stick and carrot now have to move out. So the stick becomes a limited strike on North Korea of some sort, or the carrot is learning to live with a nuclear-armed North Korea in the way that we have had to learn to live with a nuclear-armed Russia or China or India. That They are now the two dilemmas for the international community. And nuclear in the sense they will have a nuclear capability that will reach at least the west coast of the United States. And, of course, there's speculation that it could reach the north coast of Australia as well. So... The, the military are saying, look, we've got to nip this thing in the bud. Now, this is not the first time 
this type of problem has arisen. There was a similar discussion that went on within uh, the Soviet Union when the Chinese were developing their weaponry. And we, we think now the Soviet Union approached the Americans at time of Nixon and said, um, we need to carry out um, a strike on the Chinese with a view to preventing them from acquiring nuclear weapons. And the Americans said, no, we will not support you in that. And so the strike never took place. And China, of course, is now a major military power. Set a long way behind the Americans and the Russians, but nonetheless is a military, is a nuclear power. So what will the Americans um, in the decision-making rooms, what would they be discussing at the moment? What will um, be guiding their decision-making policy? process when it comes to military action against North Korea? Well, they've taken the view that if war is inevitable, how do you actually do it? Because that's the military framework. As the politicians will decide whether to go to war, the military say, well, look, this is, this is the mechanics of it. Um, we know that there is quite a profound discussion going on behind closed doors. Um, one estimation is that you've not only got to destroy the weapons of mass destruction. So we're talking about the existing nuclear weapons, but also the chemical weapons, the biological weapons that North Korea have been able to develop. You've got to be able to get rid of them as quickly as possible. Um, there's also a worry that North Korea will attack South Korea and um, the system of uh, dams and or infrastructure immediately south of the border, which would then also cause problems. But having done that, you then got to occupy North Korea in order to be able to round up all of those weapons of mass destruction. You just can't knock off the leader and assume you've solved all your problems. Do, not, do they not have satellite images? Do they have a very good idea about where all these weapons are? No, because the weapons could be hidden inside of mountains. Uh, so, And it's a very mountainous part of Korea. North Korea has got a lot of mountains, which explains some of the poverty in the north compared with the south, which is much better for farming. So they would have hidden stuff into mountains. And we know from the American experience in Afghanistan, it's actually difficult to come up with a sufficiently large explosive that destroys things buried deep inside mountains. And the other problem that's posed that you just mentioned then is, of course, the attack on South Korea. So they've got lots of weapons that are already facing South Korea. Yeah. And explain how close the countries are because it's they could they could decimate the population in minutes. They Absolutely. And this is obviously the worry. Um, one would assume that the very worrying signal would be if the Americans started to evacuate key personnel or non-essential personnel from South Korea. That would be the sign that they're taking the Americans out so they won't be killed in the ensuing war. At the moment, the Americans are not being deployed out as far as we can tell. But that'll be the warning sign because you've got um, somewhere of the order of 30,000 American troops, which means they will have wives or husbands and children that'll be deployed there. So you've got quite a large military presence with next of kin. Um, so what's going to happen to those people in the event of a surprise attack? My own feeling is that the North Korea leader will not carry out a surprise attack, but he will retaliate. And this is the dilemma for the Americans because they can see the way the North Koreans very slowly are developing their nuclear weapons. And, of course, they're having a charm offensive, which is what's going on now in South Korea. So what's what North Korea is doing, and I keep warning people, do not underestimate the North Korean leader. He is a very smart operator. And what he is trying to do is to separate South Korea away from the United States. So he's being very friendly towards South Korea. but he And so he's talking about, you know, the, the participation in the Olympics, etc. The invitation has gone to President Moon, the South Korean leader, to visit North Korea. Uh, but at the same time, 
with it, with less publicity, he's continuing developing the nuclear weapons against the Americans. He won't ever use nuclear weapons against the South Koreans because he's got enough other weaponry. So he's probably telling the truth when he says to the South Koreans, I'm not going to use nuclear weapons on you. He doesn't need to. He's got other weapons that will take care of them. Uh, but he is developing them against the United States. And once he's got them, they become untouchable. Um, so they're in the same position of, say, uh, China. You know, America is never going to attack China with nuclear weapons because of the prospect of mutual assured destruction. So how did we get to this place? I mean, we had George W. Bush Jr. how many decades ago talking about the access of evil, which was Iran, Iraq and North Korea. Yep. Um, um, this is before they invaded Iraq in 2003. So, and everyone's known forever that... North Korea was a bad egg. Why was nothing done about them? <laughs> well, remember there was a very brutal Korean War. So if you go back to the uh, Chinese, the, sorry, the Japanese being driven out of the Korean Peninsula at the end of 1945, because Japan had been the occupying power in Korea, so the Japanese were pushed out, and the uh, Russians temporarily occupied the north. The Americans temporarily occupied the south, with a view to getting the Japanese out. And then with a the view eventually to putting the two sides of the country together again. Um, instead of that, we get the outbreak of the Korean War in 1950, continuing debate as to who started it. Um, but anyway, the war goes on for three years. Appalling, absolutely appalling suffering in, in Korea. Um, and it's a war which a lot of veterans say we have forgotten, but we really ought to remember the bloodthirsty nature of the way in which the Koreans fight, North and South. And, of course, the Koreans were also, South Koreans were useful to the Americans in Vietnam, and the general feeling is the Viet Cong never went near the South Koreans because of their reputation of viciousness. So, OK, we get the armistice in 1953, cessation of fighting, but no real peace treaty, um, and so we've really had, since 1953, these attempts at trying to work out, well, where do we go from here? Because you've had two different political systems develop. In North Korea, controlled by one dynasty, the Kim family, and we're now on to the grandson of that dynasty. In the South, uh, originally a fascist dictatorship, which has actually now become a democracy. So it's a flourishing democracy. Indeed, they've recently just tried to put a, one of their leaders in jail uh, for crimes that she may have committed as president. So South Korea is now a flourishing democracy. All the time, North Korea, wrapped around this Kim dynasty, is paranoid. So and we're talking Kim Jong-un, who is in charge now, but yep. then his dad as well. Yep, Grand Kim Jong-il, and then, yeah... So we go all the way back, um, three generations of Kims. Um, makes understanding politics in Korea very easy. They're always a Kim. And <laughs> same with the sister. So they're all, they're all out of the Kim family. Um, tightly controlled, the most isolated community, I think, probably in the world. Um, they, they do not get foreign media broadcasts. If you do go there as a tourist, as a foreign tourist, you are carefully controlled. Um, so the, the, the average North Korean simply does not understand what's going on in the rest of the world. Now, of course, you get people like myself who are concerned about the peaceful settlement of international disputes, who are saying, look, the Americans are never going to attack North Korea. The problem is the Kim dynasty can say, well, look, you tell us that, but look at the behaviour. Just look at America. Don't look at the words, look at the behaviour. So you've got Americans in South Korea, you've got them in Japan, you've got them in Guam. So they're actually wrapped around North Korea. And then on top of that, as you say, 
President Bush used that awful phrase, the axis of evil, where he lumped together, just prior to the invasion of Iraq, Iraq, Iran, and North Korea. And he said, that's the axis of evil, a really stupid phrase, because Iran and Iraq had actually recently gone to war with each other. They certainly weren't allies. And now you've got North Korea, which is definitely not an Islamic country at all. So to lump the three together sounded very good for the purposes of politics, but it's really an example of what uh, Bill Hayden used to say, words are bullets when it comes to foreign policy. So you get a silly expression being used, which feeds into the paranoia of the North Korean leadership. So the North Koreans are saying, we need these weapons because if we don't have them, we've got the Americans who will try to take us out. Remember, they got rid of Saddam Hussein. They've got sanctions against Iran. Therefore, they're going to go after us. They've said that in President Bush's case. At the moment, we're seeing a very big charm offensive from North Korea at Pyeongchang Winter Olympics in South Korea, which is the first time... Gosh, when have they done a charm offensive like this, Keith? It's very and extensive, particularly the use of the sister, a very photogenic young woman. Kim Jong-un's <laughs> younger sister. sister. Yeah. Exactly right. So what are they trying to do there? Well, what they're trying to do is to uh, let people know that North Korea is not a threatening country, uh, and they certainly probably are not threatening South Korea, but they obviously would be threatening the United States. So the United States is now having to think about what they will do particularly in the next three years while Trump is in office. The worry that I've got is all this talk about, uh, as we've seen with some of the um, American military and intelligence leaders, saying, well, war seems to be inevitable. There's no other way we can solve this. This is the thing that worries me, because you get into a viewpoint that somehow something is inevitable. Whereas if you look back on history, in fact, when it comes to politics, very little is actually inevitable. Two years ago... You and I were talking about Mrs Clinton being the inevitable winner of the presidential election and everybody got that one wrong. Uh, so um, you, you cannot say that something is inevitable. The problem I have with Americans saying war is inevitable is that they will then exclude other options. A good example of this is um, um, a leader in scenario planning in the United States, Peter Schwartz, who met with the... What is scenario planning, just so, so we're right. on the same page? So there are basically three ways of thinking about the future. One is prediction. So, you know, people predict what they, who's going to win the Melbourne Cup, etc. The second one is to think about having a preferred future, what you would like to see happen. And the third one is a possible future. What could happen? Not what you're currently predicting, not what you necessarily like to see happen, but what could happen. So Peter Schwartz, who's well known on the speaking circuit, met with the Reagan cabinet at the time of the Cold War, so the 1980s. And uh, they said, look, we've got two scenarios for dealing with the Soviet Union. It's either all-out war or it's going to be a limited war. They're the two scenarios. Peter Schwartz said to uh, the cabinet, what plans have you got for a Soviet surrender? And the, the Defence uh, Secretary, Caspar Weinberger, said, war is inevitable. It's a question of how big is it going to be? That, that's the issue. As Peter Swartz said, they had no plans for Soviet surrender. Two years later, Mikhail Gorbachev comes into office and surrenders. And the Americans had no plans to cope with a Soviet surrender. So my view with politics is always to ask, what could happen? Not what is currently being predicted, which is obviously people predicting war, not necessarily what you'd like to see happen, but what could happen. And I think that what is interesting is to ask the question, under what conditions could we see a change of leadership in North Korea? 
For example, could we imagine that the leadership in North Korea gets very worried because they've got a, a leader who keeps assassinating people. He's mm. got rid of his uncle, mm. got rid of his half-brother in mm. Kuala Lumpur at the airport there. Um, so the leaders, and we know this from history, 2,000 years of history, that, the, that you get erratic rulers who, when they're starting to assassinate their own uh, leaders or, or other colleagues, um, those colleagues will gang up and assassinate them, like Caligula, the Roman Emperor. Got and Julius Caesar. Mm. So you know, we have to be thinking of the possibility. I'm not saying this is a prediction, but I'm just saying, look, what are the, the what's the the chances of there being a, a possible reaction against the current Kim, and for him to be removed? Um, obviously, the Chinese were working towards that with his half brother. They were grooming him to take over the country. Okay, he's been assassinated. Um, will the, would the the sister be involved now? That would then, uh, just following through on that, that speculative scenario, so if the sister were to become the new leader in North Korea, she might easily put North Korea onto a new path. She, she wouldn't cancel the nuclear weapons, but she could freeze the program. Um, and she could perhaps say um, that we're not going to reunify with the South. I think there are a lot of people now in the South who are really not that interested in taking over North Korea because the, they've seen what happened with West Germany taking over East Germany. Oh, but also, why would you? They're, everyone's poverty-stricken, exactly. uh, yep. poorly educated. There's no infrastructure. There's so no you, you'd, al- yep, you'd allow a family reunion, but you know the people who can remember the families before 1950 are actually declining. But you, you know, you could perhaps allow some family reunion. But you would allow North Korea to develop separately, and you end up with these two separate Koreas. But you don't end up with a North Korea with nuclear ambitions. So you've always, instead of just saying that war is inevitable, you've just got to be thinking outside the square and think about what all the other alternatives may be around. And also. So on that point, um, with a country that has been lied to for so many decades, like North Korea, I mean, they um, have no access to internet, to their television's highly controlled, mm. it's only state media. They literally have no idea what the rest of the world, how developed the rest of the world is at all. Yeah. Um, how do you ever go about um, educating them about what the rest of the world is like. It's, you have to make an admission that you've lied to them for so many years, which the Kim dynasty has. Which it has, and this would be a real problem, and, and it'll be the problem in China. How does um, a centrally controlled economy like China or North Korea gradually become liberal and, and allow the economic developments to go ahead? You know, one of the positive trends in this world has been the growth of democracy, which has come about because of the growth of the middle class. So you can end up with a military dictatorship running a poor peasant society, but a military dictatorship cannot uh, manage a modern industrial state. And so South Korea is a great example of this. So South Korea, which was a fascist dictatorship, has grown significantly. The economy is the size of Australia's. And you now have a flourishing middle class and a flourishing democracy. And it may well be that over a period of decades, North Korea could move towards that. Again, you know, people will be saying, oh, that's impossible. But I'm always saying to people, you've got to think about the unthinkable. You've got to get out of the immediate issue that you've got and just look sideways and look at opportunities. So think about the unthinkable. And it may well be that you could end up with um, eventually an outbreak of democracy in North Korea. And that is a good way to end it. Thanks Global, so much. Global Thanks. Truths with Dr. Keith Suda is recorded in the studios of Podcast One, production assisted by Alex Mitchell, audio production by Darcy Thompson. And for more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app.